So thank you for everyone joining today, our Think Anesthesia webinar for our expert panel discussion, Advancements in Exotic Animal Anesthesia. I am Amanda Shelby, the Anesthesia Solutions Coordinator here at Jerox Animal Health, and I will be moderating this discussion with our panelists. We are obligated by the FDA to share our fair balance statements for our products that Jerox manufactures or markets. There is a potential that this conversation with our panelists might involve some of these drugs as well as drugs that we do not manufacture or sell. If you would like more information on these medications, we obviously always encourage you to read the full package insert, but you can find it by searching the NADA numbers, or in this case for Alfaxa Multidose IDX, the MIF number there at the bottom of the screen. Zolotil for injection is another product we market here in the US. So please, if you are using this product in any capacity, we would encourage you to look up that fair balance statement and freedom of information summary by searching that NADA number. So our panelists have dedicated their veterinary careers to providing care to unique species. And here they will share their thoughts on anesthetic drugs, different protocols, best practices in exotic companion animals, laboratory animals, and zoological uh, species. So with that, I'm gonna introduce each one of them individually. So first up, Stephen is a registered veterinary technician. He's certified as a surgical research anesthetist. He's also a registered lab laboratory animal technician. He's a veterinary can cannabis counselor. Woo, that's hard to say and is one of the handful of certified veterinary pain practitioners here in the country. He is also a veterinary technician specialist in laboratory animal medicine um, in research anesthesia, where he serves as the executive director. He is currently employed at Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Stanford University of School of Medicine in the Department of Neurobiology. Of course, he is the COO of Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds, the Facebook group, and the Veterinary Cannaboid Academy but what I personally value most about Stephen is his dedication to promoting diversity and veterinary technician elevation within the industry. So with that, we are very excited to have his perspective during this roundtable discussion today. Next, we have Dr. Joel Brandau. He serves as an associate professor of zoological medicine at Oklahoma State University. And I cut out where he got his degree, his veterinary degree from, because I couldn't pronounce it but it's originally from uh, Portugal. So following completion of his veterinary degree, he completed multiple exotic animal medicine and zoological medicine internships before completing a zoological medicine residency and master's at Louisiana State University. And this is where our paths crossed, where he encouraged me not to fear the things with scales, beaks, and claws. He is a diplomat of the European College of Zoological Medicine with an emphasis in avian. And so we are excited to have him joining us with his global perspective. Next, we have the expert panel member, Dr. Grayson Doss. He completed his DVM at Louisiana State University, where I had the distinct privilege to work with him. Then he completed a zoological medicine residency at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Doss is a diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine and serves as a clinical assistant professor of zoological medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Veterinary Medicine. His research focuses include sedation, anesthesia, analgesia, and diagnostic imaging of zoological companion animals. Dr. Doss, we are really looking forward to hearing about your anesthetic and analgesic preferences today. 
And then last but not least, Dr. Angela Lennox joins us to share highlights of her expertise in exotic companion animal medicine. She is a graduate of Purdue University School of Veterinary Medicine and has practiced exclusively in exotic animal medicine since 1991. She is the owner of Avian and Exotic Animal Clinic here in Indianapolis, where I reside as well. And she is board certified through the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in both avian and exotic companion mammal medicine and through the European College of Zoological Medicine and Small Mammal Medicine. Dr. Lennox is an adjunct professor at Purdue, author of numerous books, chapters, articles, and has served as a journal editor and reviewer. She was voted twice and much deserved speaker, exotic speaker of the year. She also served as the chief expert in indexing Alfaxin multidose IDX, which we're going to probably ask her a few questions about and get her perspective on that process, and was recently provided us an hour presentation on Alfaxel and exotics at our first Think Anesthesia virtual conference, which is available on demand on our website. So with that's our panelists. First up, I'm going to ask an interesting question on, um, I'm just really interested in hearing from each of you your most interesting or favorite species of animal that you've anesthetized. So with that, let me start with Dr. Lennox. Could you share with us your most interesting species? They're all interesting. It really is such a fascinating subject, but I, recently we've had more, more and more people bringing us pet fish. And I've been really excited about using certain drugs as water baths. It's such an interesting concept. So I have to say fish right now are, are my happy place. That's really interesting. I do not have any experience in anesthetizing fish. We'll follow up here after we get through everyone about maybe some of the drugs that you use in that. I think that'll be an interesting uh, topic. Stephen, what's your favorite creature? <laughs> I don't know if it was my favorite creature to anesthetize, but it was definitely the, the oddest creature to anesthetize. And that was a giant anteater. They have the body mass of a Great Dane, but they're super prognathic and have a mouth an inch and a half wide and only opens about an inch. And we had to do endoscopy on it. So that was quite a challenge on keeping something anesthetized with such odd anatomy. Yeah, intubation, I'm curious about. Did you use a scope for that or? We, we didn't. We ended up doing nasal cannulas and then we had a trait kit set up because they're almost impossible to intubate, at least through their mouth. So no, we didn't. We did a mix of gas and Kiva. Dr. Doss, your favorite? I, personally, I think as a group, my favorites are large cats, so like large felids. I think those are the most interesting for me. So I think those opportunities are probably my highlights for sure. Yeah, I would agree that my favorite experiences were large cats, anesthetizing large cats. Can be scary, but definitely. And finally, last but not least, Dr. Brendel, do you have a favorite species you'd like to share with us? So I think contrary to Dr. Dawes, I don't like things that can kill me. So I'm, I'm happy not to do many of those. Now, I think that currently, I think wallabies and kangaroos are probably some of my favorite ones, especially wallabies, because we've been seeing an increase in those animals as pets, and we've been seeing many more of them. So it's quite interesting. That is, I've had the privilege to anesthetize a couple wallabies and kangaroos for foreign body ingestions. They tend to like to eat carpet in my experience, which is very limited experiences, but it's interesting uh, that we're seeing more of those become pets. I would like to circle back 
to Dr. Lennox and find out a little bit more about fish and anesthesia and analgesia. If you could share some of the highlights of that, just drugs you use and maybe how do you monitor them and pain management, just a general overview. Okay. The, the analgesia thing, I'm going to have to pass because there's not a lot we know about it and not lots. If you look in the, the literature, there's not a whole lot out there. And, and maybe some of the zoo focused people could answer that a little bit better. I usually have to look it up every time, but for anesthesia, it's been really simple using alfaxalone um, water baths, really simple and fairly inexpensive and wrapped even better than when we used to use some of the other products. It's just, we like this. It's also the protocol to use to get them to completely anesthetized prior to euthanasia too. So unfortunately, a lot of what we do with older fish with large, these are fish that people love and they're getting on 10, 15 some years for a goldfish and they've got tumors. And so euthanasia often is something we're, we're having to do. So for, anal, again, the anesthesia, the um, alfaxalone water bath, I think is wonderful. And then using AVMA protocols for euthanasia. Otherwise, we've taken up some tumors. I, I, I didn't want to make you think I'm a fish expert. I'm just saying more and more people are bringing them in and we've had to, well, really up our game with that. But otherwise, we would also use alfaxalone for a surgical procedure in a, the water bath type of protocol with the water over, over the gills and, and set up in the cute little troughs and such. There's lots of good descriptions on how to do that. We use locals, we use a lot of locals in everything, whether or not there's a load of evidence for it, I still think it's a great thing to do. So that kind of, that's about where we are on fish, but it's a lot of fun. I'd like to learn more about it. So we do have a question from our audience that follows up on a control drug such as alfaxalone in a water bath. One, my first question is, where do you find resources for dosing? And the follow-up question would be, and, and anybody's welcome to jump in there, the follow-up question with how do you dispose from a legal controlled drug standpoint of that water bath wastewater, so to speak, with the controlled drug in there? I believe on the, we can't remember if in the indexing, we, we actually went through fish, but whether we did or not, there are publications for immersion bath. One, a recent one, immersion bath, I can almost pull it up here in a little bit with alfaxalone and goldfish. Um, and that's pretty easily to, to, you can find that on the internet fairly quickly. I'm going to look for it for you here in just a minute. Alfaxalone, 10 mil milligrams per liter. And this is generally, we've used it in multiple kinds of fish other than the, the koi or the goldfish where, the, where it was described. I'm going to have to ask you about the disposal of the water bath. And that's one of those things that I hadn't really thought about until right now. So I'm, you're throwing me some really hard ones here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to let Stephen no. shake in his head. Yes, I think he has something to add about disposal. Uh, Stephen? I don't. I don't. No, not at all. I was just thinking, though, that's a big waste cost for uh, getting rid of all that water. I, I do feel like I have seen a koi paper, though. I've never used alfaxalone in a fish yet, but I feel like I have seen a paper in a koi with an IM injection of alfaxalone. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it, it, that's, it's a little tougher to do. It's a little bit more handling and a little more stress. So I really like the water bath. Now with the, the anesthetic water bath, we make it as absolutely small as possible to accommodate the fish so that there's small amounts used. So it's not huge amounts of that, but yeah, I don't, anybody else on the waste discussion? 
No. So I personally don't deal with it, but because of regulation at the university, we do have to dispose of it through main campus. If I'm not mistaken, it is a process of charcoal and then solid waste disposal. I think that's how they process and we have to pretty much any water medication has to go through them. So to do we also have to send it to main campus. We don't just flush it down the toilet. But I believe it's a process of shark wall to inactivate the, the drug and then um, some kind of problem. Right. A solid yeah. product disposal. Exactly how that's done, not entirely sure. So I'll chime in on waste. Generally speaking, with any controlled medication, not specific to alfaxalone, but this would fall into that if you put it into a larger solution, so something like a water bath. Each state has its own regulations. For example, here in Indiana, we use a kitty letter disposal system. We would have to witness the waste from a milligram or milliliter standpoint for each drug that would be used in any capacity with a species. So again, if, if you're concerned about waste in your field, specific to your country or state, we do have quite a large international audience on these webinars. You would need to look up your local jurisdictions um, associated with that waste. Very interesting fish. There are some papers and IDX was indexed for some additional aquatic species for immersion baths such as toads and amphibians as well. I would like to follow up with the process of indexing. So some of us may not necessarily understand what indexing is. So there are not many drugs that offer an on-label use for minor species, and there is an alternative pathway to get pharmaceutical products legally marketed for minor species, which we call indexing. And there is a link that you can find that lists all the index products on the FDA's CVM's website. And so this process for drugs that apply to a variety of species or rare species that cannot go through the typical FDA process, the indexing allows for that to happen. As mentioned in the bio, Dr. Lennox participated as one of the expert panel members, I believe it was a five panel team that Jerox employed for indexing Alfaxin multidose, which is sold as Alfaxin multidose IDX. What I wanna ask you, each one of you, I'll start with Dr. Lennox is, when a product is indexed, does that influence any line of work as far as product selection goes in your clinical practice? It's supposed to, because there's the legalities of that. If Again, if it's an indexed product, it really shouldn't be used outside the way it is actually labeled. And there are some species that weren't on that the, the index list. So we'd have to consider that. So is that kind of what you're getting to? Yeah, just it's interesting. Most people don't necessarily have an appreciation for the behind the scenes labeling and um, approval process for drugs. And just generally, and I'm going to go around the, the table here is when a product is indexed or um, obviously the process of indexing, does that influence in those in academia, does that influence your instruction of highlighting these products are indexed? You have the support in using them, or does that make any clinical impact in the discussion? I see Stephen, you're off mute, so I'm just gonna throw this at you. Yeah, coming from the research world, it definitely makes protocol writing and um, creating protocols uh, a lot easier. A lot of times when we have to submit protocols to the IACUC, there's a lot of justification you have to do for certain drugs you wanna use. And if there is an indexed product, that definitely makes our life a lot easier. And then also just being an evidence-based kind of person, it is really nice to have indexing because that's my primary 
resource that I'm using when we create these protocols or trying to justify a new experiment. Excellent. Thank you for that. Dr. Doss, do you have anything to add or anything to suggest on indexing of products? I mean, I think for me, it carries more weight because it's of all the drugs that we can choose from, there's the indexing with the expert panel. It actually says that other people have looked at this and their expertise has gone into considering this as for those particular species. And so if you're comparing that to a drug where there's nothing, there's very little data for that select species, then that obviously carries more weight when I'm choosing drugs for protocol. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Brindell. Yeah, I think in academia, in the process of teaching students, it's very important to highlight the, the licensing process and what, what weight that carries. So I think it's an important aspect to, to bring it up to the students for sure. And I think it's a question of uh, building up a mindset of trying to take advantage of what has been properly licensed and properly researched to achieve such a type of recognition. So to follow up on products and drug selection, obviously you have your index products that you can choose from, but there's not very many of them. I want to ask you, and I'm going to start with Dr. Brandau, when you are, when you have a clinical patient come in and it's a species that you might not be as familiar with, where do you go for a list of resources to be able to confidently or as confidently as possible, make an anesthetic plan for this patient? Yeah, so I think that's pretty much almost a day-to-day process that we have to go through uh, just because of the limitations that we have on the species that we see. And I do think that uh, using primarily published uh, peer review uh, journals would be the most useful as well um, as some books. I prefer the peer review just because it's going to be possible to have a better description of the population, more precise information on the exact protocol that is being published. And obviously, with the understanding that sometimes you may not go down to the species, you may have to go down to the genus or occasionally sometimes up to the order. And that raises a lot of issues. It is what fascinates me about exotics and the challenges that we carry of this uncertainty and this day-to-day changes. But at the same time, it is uh, rewarding that more and more people are doing research and publishing those results and allow us to have a better idea of what we're doing. But I would say short answer is that peer review publications primarily, obviously some formularies, obviously some books, uh, and then also contacting colleagues and seeing their experience. But peer review for sure is going to be my first objective. Excellent. Dr. Doss, would you like to add anything to that? I'm on the same page as well. I think peer review, I tend to lead more, a little bit more towards than books simply because the peer review literature is going to be newer a lot of times. At least it's easier for new stuff to come out than in textbooks where there's a little bit of a lag just because of the time it takes to create those. But also part of my job is to stay up to date on peer review literature. So I have some time devoted to that. So I think outside of that, when I'm in a hurry, I'm seeing a bunch of cases, then you think like formularies. So the exotic animal formulary is helpful, a good place to start because you have a lot of experts consolidating those things. But like Joelle mentioned, it can be a challenge, particularly when you're working with species that there's very little data for. And you also get hit with just a, a huge list of potential options and dose ranges for the, even the same species. So it can be a challenge to know. And that's where personal experience starts to help you narrow down. I used that dose before, 
didn't work out as like I wanted it to, then maybe adjust it. So I think it just takes time and it takes repetition working with that species. And that can be helpful to supplement some of the gaps and the, the knowledge that's out there. Thank you. Dr. Lennox, you're off mute. Do you want to add anything to that? And then I'm going to switch to Stephen just to follow up in lab animal. The only other thing to mention is a lot of times the things in peer-reviewed literature might feature a drug or two, and they often or rarely are multi-drug combinations, which is where we're going to more with anesthesia. We're finding using smaller doses of more and more agents is actually safer and better and great. So what happens there if you pulled out your formulary and you took the doses of the single and the single, they're way too high. So we have to, to, and this is the skills worth anecdotal and clinical experience, you got to reduce those dosages significantly when you're starting to add more and more agents. And you're not going to find that in a peer-reviewed publication yet. Hopefully it will, it will be. So there's a lot to it. Excellent. Stephen, I'm really interested in how you guys select your protocols for IACUC approval and your experience in laboratory animal and research with selecting drugs and utilizing resources, like what you guys go to for resources to have the next cutting edge research out there for your, your populations. Yeah, I would echo what everyone else said, but I would also, I, I rely on other countries' labels. So I think Alfaxlone is a perfect example specifically for rabbits, right? I believe it's approved in the UK or Australia for rabbits. Am I correct on that? You are. I do. I am legally okay. obligated just to highlight quickly that here in the US, food producing animals, rabbits, fall into that are not approved for the label here in the U.S., but I'll let you all speak to your experience and expertise. Yes. So I do rely on other countries' labels if it was approved, especially since they generally have dosing as well. But as Dr. Lennox said, it's really important as we create these multimodal protocols to decrease the dose. So to answer the question, I rely on other countries' labeling as well, especially since it is backed up with some sort of, of study. Thank you. And to just highlight, obviously, we're on the topic of other species. And Dr. Lennox, in clinical practice, I know you see a lot of companion mammals and you see a lot of reptiles and birds in clinical practice. And could you highlight species that you're using the Alfaxalone or, or other products in most frequently and just detail a little bit about your experience with that? It's hard to find a species where we are not using Alfaxalone. It's turned out to be an extremely valuable addition to the protocols that we already have in place for both sedation and premedication. And as of yet, I've not found a, a species where we have said, hey, this isn't working well, let's just back off of that. So that's good. That's good. And that speaks to the safety. In terms of should I give an example of a well rabbit elective anesthetic protocol would as many as five drugs. And we're talking about an opioid. We're talking about medazolam, dexmedetomidine, ketamine, and alfaxalam. And that's five drugs. A lot of people are very nervous about that because uh, there's just a sort of a perception that less is better and safer when it really isn't. So this is a five drug protocol. That's a pretty common thing that's used in our practice. The doses are small. They're not anesthetic doses. They are pre-anesthetic. They are sedation doses. They're very low. And we found that to be very safe and useful for the main practices when we get to the induction stage, 
whether we're going to induce with an injectable or we're going to induce with an inhalant, we have a patient that's not stressed out, that isn't objecting to a face mask, that isn't struggling, that we don't have to put in a bunny burrito and hold tight. That's stressful. And that's, we want to avoid that in practice. Yeah, I'm going to follow up with Dr. Doss. Can you comment further on the use of injectable versus inhalant anesthesia? I can tell you, you know, I've been a technician, licensed technician for 15 years this year now, and I have seen a gravitation towards more injectable use versus masking everything down. Can you speak to a variety of species? Pick one. Do you want to talk about reptiles? Do you want to talk about birds or small rodents? But what have you seen as a trend in your career just navigating the world of injectables versus mask inductions or a combination of the two in, in, in use together? I think in exotics, particularly, we're, it's hard not to be behind if you compare that to obviously human practices and even compared to large animal and cat dog medicine. But I think at least since I've been involved in exotic animal medicine, which hasn't been that long, there's been a significant trend in reevaluating how we're approaching premedication or sedation of exotic animals to try and mitigate some of the morbidity and mortality we're seeing, especially with debilitated animals, and even working it into elective procedures, which is fantastic. So I think at least in the environments that I've been involved in, Premedication sedation before these inhalant or general anesthetic procedures has become the, the standard, which is excellent. So I think that speaks to how deeply we're thinking about how the physiology of these animals and what stress can do to them, because masking is it's a pretty stressful thing. And so I'm not saying that it doesn't work and it's not not useful in, in select situations, but you want to be mindful of how stressed that animal is before you're moving them into an inhalant level or inhalant anesthesia. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Brendel, would you like to comment on any of the concepts of just the trajectory of injection versus mask or combination of such? Yeah, I think we have evolved significantly over the last probably 15 years or so, I do remember when I started uh, working more in this field that I was always told, I let's stay away from injectables. There's a lot of side effects to it. And I think if we look back in that information where that was coming from as well, we were using quite high doses. I think that might've been the problem a little bit uh, similar to what Dr. Lennox, Lennox was saying. We were using single agents. And yeah, if you give a whopping dose of ketamine to a bird, it's going to have problems, but that probably is not that different from dogs and cats. It's just that they are not doing that for a long time. So I think there's an, uh, an evolution of knowing more and uh, trying to decrease doses using multi-agents. And we are seeing a lot of good outcomes with that. And personally, I pretty much don't anesthetize most things for CTs, for any kind of non-painful procedure. We're now doing most of the things in the sedation only. And it is a learning curve. We're obviously having to uh, adapt and improve our protocols, but I think we're getting very good results with that. And I would say that potentially safer, obviously not uh, one single protocol is adequate for every animal and is safe for every animal. But for the most part, it appears to be a, an adequate option of the, trying to go towards sedation. And then also using that to the benefit of doing a pre-medication to minimize the anesthetic gases later on. Thank you. 
I want to switch a little bit the gear towards injectable, obviously gas inhalants don't have analgesia, but Stephen being a pain police practitioner for a lack of proper terminology there, but can you add anything to the idea that we've been progressive or speak to advancements we've made in zoological medicine, laboratory animal, companion animal, from your perspective on analgesia specific to injectables in in these patients? Yeah, I think the first thing to mention is I'm glad we've overcome this idea that some of these exotic species don't experience pain. I, I remember distinctly being younger and birds in particular was the big thing. Oh, that's why we get that. We have that term of bird brain because we were thinking they were dumb, but now we have fMRI studies showing that, wow, they are very sentient and very complex. And yes, they experience pain the same way we do. That's been a big advantage and it's just getting that message out really. The other part of the analgesia concept in exotic animals when creating some of these protocols is these analgesics oftentimes add to or are part of that anesthetic profile. So like, I like using higher doses of buprenorphine or higher doses of butorphanol, not only for the analgesic properties of them, but also for some of the sedation or the, the potentiation they have with other drugs that we're using. And the same is true with drugs that we use commonly that a lot of people are still maybe not necessarily defining as an analgesic drug, but things like dexmedetomidine or even ketamine has pain relieving properties. So incorporating some of those drugs that have these analgesic effects is, I think, really important and something that is thankfully being pushed more by, by people like us on this profile, on this panel in practice. So it, it has changed a lot. There's still a lot of misconceptions out there that we're still trying to push back against, but it's getting better. <laughs> Wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I was going to ask Dr. Lennox, do you want to add anything about the progression of analgesia in clinical practice that you've experienced? Yeah, I have to probably admit being the elder person here. So I will flat out tell you, I grew up in the butorphanol is all we have and, and everything, face mask, everything is face mask for immobilization. And that was just a kind of the, the way it goes and reflects what we had and what we knew. So the new policy now is we do not anesthetize anything that where anesthesia is not absolutely indicated. And that opens up a giant group of, as, as everyone else is saying, sedation to use instead. Now, I still get the pushback we get from that is if I use my face mask really quick, they're up and ready and can go home quicker. And that's usually from practitioners who are trying to go quick and get them out the door. But I don't think it's a legitimate excuse for it. And the other thing, if you want to look at AVMA recommendations for euthanasia, if, uh, using face mask inhalant of any kind to immobilize prior to euthanasia is no longer recommended. Why? Because for euthanasia, we're trying to build this experience of stress-free calm and inhalants don't fit that. So they've taken it out. It's just interesting. It makes you think. Yeah. I, I, can I add on that too? Just yeah. the, the face mask stuff. I, it's such a soapbox for me, but other than the standard of care for our patients and the availability of injectable or uh, transmucosal drugs or whatever that we have available to us now, it's a really important safety issue for the staff as well. There's been multiple studies in human settings, even with low grade exposure to these halogenated gases, increases potential for depression, increases potential for drug and alcohol abuse for the people working with these drugs regularly. And there's a really cool paper we posted in the anesthesia nerds 
about measurable level, levels of these halogenated anesthetic gases in the atmosphere. Like that is, <laughs> so not only is it not necessarily the best for our patients, it's not good for us, it's also not good for the environment. Yeah, I feel like there's an expiration date on our uh, planet that we're running up against. Um, so along the lines of safety, and I'm going to admit, for me, the most stressful patient to anesthetize, and it is a rabbit, because I am terrified of traumatizing the airway. <laughs> so I just want to ask, and I'm going to go around the horn with everyone here. It doesn't have to be about rabbits. I was just sharing my panic button is always pressed when they come to me and ask me if I can anesthetize some sick bunny, which I do, but, but I'm definitely most stressed about that intubation. In the realm of safety and advancements in monitoring, I would love to hear from you guys about what piece of monitoring equipment you find the most valuable to have for the diverse populations you work with and just any key pieces of information you can share that really would help us clinically reduce our stress and provide a better outcome for our patient. Dr. Lennox, you're off mute, so I'm going to start with you if you don't mind. Okay, so I'm going to say this, and it's so trite, and everyone's probably going to say it, and you can, whatever. It is the trained, experienced anesthetic nurse, hands down. Somebody who's experienced and knows what they're doing. And this even was brought up in the big, the wonderful broad belt study that looked at anesthetic death rates in large populations. And a factor for negative outcomes was nurse or technician unfamiliarity and veterinarian unfamiliarity. So that's a big one. Just a, a thing with birds and exotics, it seems the first thing they might notice is that there's a change in respiratory, and I will just say character. Something is different, and it seems to occur before the monitors start telling you whole bunches of stuff. Now, that being said, I, you can talk about the benefits of all these monitors. And you know what, Stephen, I think you're going to do a well but better job than I would. But if I had to pick one monitor, you only get one monitor. It's a Doppler, <laughs> the ultrasonic Doppler, because it goes on everybody. We can always use it. If every equipment fails, that one's going to work for you. Yeah, Stephen, you want to, I feel like she tossed the ball to you. Do you want to chime in? <laughs> no, I think Doppler is good, especially since my answer is a little bit nuanced. As an anesthesia guy, I would say one of our most important pieces of, of equipment would be the entitled CO2 monitor, if we can get them safely intubated, right? That's the nuance there. And then we also have the nuance of, yes, there is a change in respiratory character. And then is the, the adapter that we're putting on creating more dead space for that particular animal? But that is a piece of equipment I really like for our exotic animal friends. Excellent. Dr. Brendel, you want to add anything to your favorite piece of equipment or whatever you find to be the most impactful on improving outcome and safety in your patients? So I don't know if I can talk about anything new, just because fairness, I think over the years that I've been practicing, most of the technology that we use now is already available. So it's not, I don't think I can see that much of a change. I think the future will come with the uh, invasive blood pressure, with different type of uh, methodologies, cardiac output that eventually will become applicable. Right now it's very limited for us and that's the more newer technology. But in terms of monitoring, one thing that I, it's a pet peeve of mine, that is to focus on temperature. I think that's something that many times these animals are going to die because of temperature, because we're not being either providing enough, not monitoring enough, or we are having just complications. I think it's something that's going to affect the physiology in a tremendous way. And obviously everything else is quite important to be monitored and to be addressed. 
the only other thing I would mention is like, I think in terms of mortality of exotic animals uh, during anesthesia, yes, I'm not questioning the papers that have been published. There is a higher mortality rate. However, I would also say that we're not necessarily comparing apples to apples many times. We're comparing a small animal that are going to be intubated with um, a multi-drug uh, protocol with all the possible monitoring equipment. And then we are comparing it to a rabbit with a face mask on ISO. So obviously it's not comparable, the level of anesthesia that is provided to these animals and the level of monitoring. And size will have an impact. Obviously we're gonna have much more limitations in a tiny hamster than we have in a nine kilo giant Flemish. There's always gonna be a lot of difference associated with that. And I think it's important that we, yes, let's take into account these publications, understand better what we've been doing wrong and how we can improve it. But at the same time, I think that sometimes we're not comparing the exact same thing because we're not providing the same quality of care. And I personally, maybe I'm gonna shoot myself in the foot here, but uh, I don't actually think rabbits are that bad anesthetic candidates. I actually think they do quite well as long as they are treated in a similar manner to do to, to other larger species. Thank you. Dr. Doss, do you wanna add anything? I feel like we covered quite a bit, but I'd love to hear if you have a particular piece of equipment or really a sense of focus. I like the, the temperature monitoring and I think we could really talk a lot about the different species and reptiles versus snakes versus birds and mammals, but is there anything in particular you really focus on and emphasize to your students? I think I definitely would have to bring up hypothermia that Dr. Brandel brought up because it's just something that if you work with larger species, it doesn't sit at the forefront. If you're working with a large felid or a German shepherd, you're not necessarily worried about that animal getting super cold, super fast. Whereas what's out in the literature, if you're looking at small exotic mammals, if you think of the surface area for their body mass, these animals are going to get significantly hypothermic within minutes of starting the mobilization. So unless you're providing aggressive thermal support for the entire procedure, you're really doing, you could be doing some serious harm and you're going to protract that recovery period and mess with that animal's physiology. So I think that's something that is really important. Um, and since Doppler and Capnograph were both taken, which are my two favorites, I'm going to be a bit tongue-in-cheek and say reflexes, good old-fashioned reflexes, because a lot of times we, and those are a challenge, because it doesn't necessarily always play the same way as it would in a dog or a cat. I find that pupil position for me is just not super helpful, and it really depends on species, because sometimes trying to see where the pupil is can be really challenging, but Things like riding reflex, pelvic withdrawal, jaw tone is a big one, palpebrals hit or miss for me, but certainly something to keep a tab on. And we're getting more and more information published about particular reflexes that are lost and regained in certain orders with different species, particularly for reptiles. So it can, as more and more stuff comes out, I think it'll be easier and less frightening to do sedation and anesthesia in those species, just because we know what to look for. But those are all good things that have been mentioned. Yeah, so it sounds to me or what my primary takeaway would be that just being able to be familiar with the specific animal species, 
that your anesthetizing is really impactful. And then obviously it, Dopplers are cheap. Capnography does add a little bit of an expense to the monitor, but if you have a multi-parameter unit, I agree. I feel like there's no replacement for capnography. Um, along the lines of capnography, obviously either a tight-fitting mask, a really good laryngeal airway mask or intubation is probably required to get reliable readings in capnography. Along those lines, we've gotten quite a few questions in the Q&A about rabbit intubation, the use of an endotracheal tube, of the V-gel or another laryngeal airway mask. Um, and specifically with the endotracheal tubes, do you inflate the cuff? Do you not inflate the cuff? I'm going to start with Dr. Lennox because I know that she has quite a large uh, rabbit population that she sees in clinical practice. Again, okay, so we don't use cuff tubes at all. So that kind of eliminates that. And you do have to look to find the larger tubes that are uncuffed, but you can find them. They're, they're certainly out there. And laryngeal masks we have, and I leave a lot of this up to my nurses on how, what they like and their feel. They use them sometimes. Um, they're useless for dentistry, can't use them. So they're, that's out for that. And there is problem with anytime you move the patient, it moves it around. So it's not their favorite, but we like to use it, especially for resuscitation it is another good reason, or sometimes they'll use it. But pretty much the mainstay for us is intubation. And we have been intubating for, boy, it's decades now and using safe techniques, the risk of injury is very low and the published injuries are lab usually laboratory animals. I'm not sure what's going on. I don't give any details, so I'm not sure, but I'm sure it's a rough technique, et cetera. So there are two ways to do it. One is blind. This is the technique we learned a long, long time ago, and it still remains a favorite for a lot of my nurses, but it, technically using an endoscope with the endotracheal tube over the top of the, this over the top technique to actually visualize, you should be able to use a slightly larger tube, prevent injury and make sure there's no food and junk in there that you're going to push on into the airway. They're all intubated and Unless it's, if, if they're going for surgery, they're going to be intubated and or use the laryngeal mask if the nurse prefers. Yeah, that, and that's my preferred method of intubation. I, I told the clinic, I'm like, yeah, get me a video otoscope or something where I can see what I'm doing. I will look to see if any of you guys take yourselves off mute if you want to add anything about intubation, not necessarily specific to rabbits, but intubation and, and safety. Steven? <laughs> Yeah, I would echo Dr. Lennox. I'm not a huge fan of the V-gels in general, but I, I do really like the silicone tubes for our exotic friends, especially the wire reinforced ones. They have a wire coil in it just because these tubes can become so flimsy and they will start, sometimes get kinked if people aren't paying attention with those. You don't necessarily have to worry about that. And then the other nice thing about the silicone tubes is oftentimes you can take the plastic adapter off and autoclave them, which I think is really important. Uh, I like to use a new tube or at least a sterile tube for every patient. We've done some interesting cultures off of endotracheal tubes that we thought were clean and have gotten all kinds of E. coli growth on them, which is really nasty. That is my two cents there. And then for rabbits, I learned this from a friend, Jody Nugent Deal. You modify uh, a stethoscope uh, earpiece. You put a little piece of an endotracheal tube connected to the stethoscope tubing, cut a hole in it so the animal can breathe. You connect your endotracheal tube to it so you can do this combination of blind technique plus visualization 
uh, you can listen for the breaths while giving, while trying to intubate the rabbit with a laryngoscope or doing it completely blind. I'll send a picture so you can send that out. Excellent. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit because we got a question from the audience that I think is probably, we got about nine minutes left. So this might be a bigger question than you all want to dedicate time to answer to in the time remaining that we have. But it's interesting because in obviously routine dogs and cats, specifically in dogs, we have a large metabolic difference and metabolic rate just between different breeds of dog. And so in the contextual like exotic companion animal zoological medicine species that you all are anesthetizing, the question revolves around, do you dose based on milligram per kilogram dosing, considering the variations in metabolic rate, or do you really lean towards something like a body surface area dose based dosing. And I'm going to start with Dr. Doss, if you don't mind me throwing that at you. <laughs> no, caught it. I'm just going to say allometric scaling is there's a lot of information out there, um, particularly in the zoo world when it comes to dosing, because we're dealing with things like as small as insects. And then you're also looking at megavertebrates. And so it's definitely a real issue when you're trying to extrapolate from what's out there in the literature, I would say the what I tend to do when dealing with like zoological companion animals is a lot of times it's on a milligram per kilogram basis. But I think over time I've found things that I'm more comfortable kind of looking at dose ranges for certain drugs. And I think that a lot of that has to do with personal experience. Although I'm using allometric scaling I use less in the smaller animals and it's it's certainly something to keep uh, that I keep in mind when I'm dealing with larger zoo species. Dr. Brenda I see you took yourself off mute so I'm hoping you have a contribution there from your experiences. Yeah I think that I still use a meat per kick dose always but if you ask me am I going to anesthetize or sedate a 50 kilo sulcata tortoise the same way as I would anesthetize a 5 kilo sulcata tortoise probably I'm going to do a lower dose on the larger animal because there will be a difference in the metabolism in terms of distribution of the drug the only thing I would mention is like in terms of qual- calculating actually calculating the the surface of an animal it is a quite complex process. So like, for example, to do the calculation of the surface in ferrets for chemotherapeutics, this has been published and this takes a lot of efforts like CT measurements to then determine the actual surface of the animal. So it's not very simple to actually do that in in an appropriate manner, in a very scientific manner. But obviously I think that you could assume that the largest size animal of the same species is probably going to be somewhat slower to metabolize the drug. So maybe decreasing a little bit or a lot, depending a little bit on that difference. I think that's probably more relevant to some species of Chelonians, like um, Aldabras or Burmese Mountain, Black Mountain tortoise, all these kind of species, you probably have to take more in that into account. Versus a rabbit that's honestly between a large giant Flemish and a hot dot may, yes, those two are being quite different, but uh, rabbits may not be as relevant just because the difference in size is typically not that much. Thank you. And Dr. Lennox or Stephen, do you have anything you want to add or? For years, people would anecdotally say, hey, bigger rabbits cut the dose down, little rabbits stay a little higher. And that, yeah, sometimes I think we see that and a lot of of respected people that do anesthesia follow that. If it's larger, they actually cut the milligram per kilogram dose. And then we see that in our 
dog species to some degree, obviously I'd probably select a lower mig per kig in the Great Dane than I would the Chihuahua and you see some variation there. So it can be expected in some of our, like you mentioned, tortoises and other species as well. I think I have time for one more question from the audience and then I'm just going to go around the horn and give you guys the opportunity to tell me one or two drugs that you just absolutely couldn't live without and there's no obligation to mention anything that Jurox manufactures. I'm just curious that if you had to have one or two things on your shelf, what would it be? But first, the audience has asked regarding the concept of pre-medications before pre-medications, so at-home sedation for some of these species, thinking gabapentin or trazodone, this movement in cats and dogs were, were doing like at-home stress pre-sedation before arrival to the hospital. Is that something that is segueing into companion animal, exotic animal medicine? Do you see any of that? Are you making recommendations along those lines? Dr. Lennox, we'll start with you and then just go around. This is a great subject. And we've been talking about this a lot in context with even getting ready to come in for, in, for euthanasia, things like that. And that's something we need some really good work, but we are working with compounding pharmacies on some transdermal diazepam and midazolam products to administer at home, like in the pinna of the rabbit's ear, and just starting to look at that with a large rescue. And that's something we hope is going to really be helpful. I, I feel the gabapentin in rabbits doesn't really do what it does in cats to the extent it does in cats. But otherwise, I'm a little nervous about sending anybody with injectable type of things. But I think this transdermal thing is the way to go. And I, I think that'll be something really interesting in the next few years. Anybody else trying it? Yeah. So in the regular clinical practice world, I do get a little bit apprehensive with with suggesting to my doctor sending home pre-medications only because so many times the exotic animals are coming in with underlying illness or it's not fully worked up. And so in that setting, I'm a little bit more apprehensive, although I'm not against sending home a small dose of midazolam that can be given intranasally, in particular to rabbits. In the lab animal world, there is some interest with looking at pregabalin in particular for rodent and rabbit animal of uh, rabbit models for a little bit of sedation before handling them or taking them in uh, for in a procedure. I personally haven't had a lot of experience with that, so can't comment too much, but it is something that is of interest. But then again, we, we have our limitations from protocols as well. Interesting. Anything Dr. Brendel or Dr. Doss you'd like to add? It probably will be the future. I think the, it seems like we're pretty much always a little bit behind small animal medicine. So if there is this approach, I think it will start to occur. I think the big question is going to be, are we going to start doing this whenever regulation changes and we may not be able to dispense some of these drugs as uh, it appears it is happening more and more often. And there will be also, at least in the US, state-based regulations that may cause some limitations. I don't have necessarily a problem of animals that are truly stressed. Now, obviously, the question a lot of times is, uh, are you calming down the animal or are you calming down the owner by giving the drug? So that's also going to be a different aspect to the problem. Yeah, that's definitely uh, sometimes we manage our clients. Dr. Doss? I would say there's definitely a desire from the clients that we see. And I think there's a need for certain animals that are high stress and need repeated appointments. So I think the major limitation that I consistently discuss with clients is just the, the safety data. So, or the effic efficacy data. And I think once we have that, I and mean, once we can find something that seems to work, then I'm ready to dive in. 
Stephen, you're up. If you had one or two drugs on your shelf, what would it be? I feel pressured. Alfaxalone, for sure. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Dr. Brendel. Uh, Midazolam. Oh, yeah, that's a good Sorry one. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's definitely a good one in the species you're working with, definitely. Dr. Lennox. Midazolam and Alfaxalone. There you go. <laughs> for reptiles. For reptiles. Can't live without it. Excellent. Everyone, we appreciate everyone's attendance. We appreciate the discussion that you've had. Thank you very much, expert panelists. We've enjoyed uh, speaking with you. And at this time, thank you, everyone.